The conventional wisdom, <laughs> boy, that's another show, says that a strong economy starts at the source of currency. Why, if the Fed didn't create green pieces of paper, how would anyone trade for goods or services? Top-down economics is very challenging to learn or understand or discuss. My guest today is going to turn that idea upside down, put the power of the economy where it belongs, and share some insights into why getting help, air quotes, from the government is no help at all. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 103. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Stan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Cooking for Comfort. My cookbook is available on Amazon and a link on my blog culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. You can read the introduction there and see some of the fan photos of some of the dishes. Head over to my support page, culinarylibertarian.com slash support to find some of my affiliate banners and the links for Patreon and PayPal. When you subscribe to those affiliates or make monthly donations, that helps support the show. Fall is on the way, and that means a new season of wine. Check out culinarylibertarian.com slash C-A-Wine for some of the new labels and to join the premier internet wine club. My guest today is Bradley Thomas. Bradley has a master's degree in economics and more than a dozen years of self-directed study in Austrian economics. He's been writing about the freedom philosophy and economics for 10 years, the last two, at his website, erasethestate.com. Bradley's writing has also appeared on Mises.org, libertarianinstitute.com, lewrockwell.com, fee.org, and he is the author of Tweeting Liberty, Libertarian Tweets to Smash Statists and Socialists. Welcome, Bradley. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, so am I, and I think we have a good one for the listeners. I've given the listeners a bit of your publishing bio, but before we get rolling here, uh, just a little bit about yourself, please. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am creator of uh, the website erasethestate.com, uh, and that uh, is a website really dedicated to uh, uh, contribute to the spread of uncompromising and principled ideas of indiv individual liberty, uh, which are obviously things that are very near and dear to my heart. Uh, and and otherwise, I have a I do have a background in economics. Uh, several years ago, I earned a a um, master's degree in economics, uh, and that was years after um, getting a business degree. Uh, spent years in marketing and sales and various different types of uh, uh, professions along the line, uh, but uh, really dedicating myself the last several years to uh, um, 
trying to be more of a contributor in terms of writing and 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 creating this website, and I contribute to other uh, the websites that you had mentioned previously, and. Um, so really, uh, again, my, my background was economics. That was kind of my entree into the ideas of, of liberty. Well, free markets was kind of the entree. But then once you start reading and, uh, you know, Mises and Rothbard and folks like that for the economics, then you get intrigued and wanting to read more about more of the uh, political philosophical side of things. And so that really led me down the path of, of libertarianism as well. So that's just kind of a, a little bit of background. You know, I came from a uh, kind of a traditional, uh, I guess, conservative viewpoint, um, kind of conventional conservative Republican, if you will, uh, years, many years ago. Uh, and then just kind of took, continue taking steps down this, down this path towards libertarianism. And, and that's where I am today. Very good. All right, so if you, the listener, haven't deduced, we're going to be talking about economics. If your first reaction is, ugh, well, that's not altogether inappropriate, but it's going to be better than that. We're going to do kind of a primer almost. So even at that, there's a lot that can be covered. Uh, I want us to focus on the listener because I think we have my show more than others probably has people who are not as... Uh, aware of the finer concepts of economics, and so I want to you know, bridge that gap a little bit. If I think we can, I, I think we can start with the idea of personal preferences and how each person making his or her own choice sort of puts the wheels into motion about what economics is, and we're going to use this to introduce the idea of Austrian economics. So, Riley, are you ready? Yes, absolutely. That's a, a subject near and dear to my heart, so <laughs> right. definitely ready to roll. So, give your best three-minute version of why Austrian economics is relevant to each person. Oh, wow, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I think the uh, best starting point for that is that in, in the Austrian School of Economics, the, the starting point for analysis in, is the individual. Um, it's, it's what Austrians call the action axiom, which basically states that, you know, human beings act with a purpose in mind uh, uh, to achieve ends or goals. Uh, and that's really the starting point and the building block uh, upon which really the whole edifice of the economic theory is built upon. I mean, you, you uh, uh, using logical deduction, you can deduce things from that initial action axiom and through multiple steps, then you start getting to at you know uh, marginal utility, uh, uh, the laws of supply and demand, constructing demand curves, supply curves, um, uh, you know opportunity costs, and and just really the the importance of scarcity, and uh, really looking at economics through this means ends kind of framework, I think is always really super helpful. And anytime um, um, you know looking at uh, uh, stories about economics and trying to understand things. It's always good to try to back up and, and always think that, you know, economics is, it's not, you know, th this big uh, black and white uh, blackboard of statistical equations, you know, at its core, economics is just understanding the implications of people making decisions and acting with a goal in mind in a world of scarce resources that have alternative uses. Um, 
So when you don't ground yourself in that starting point, it's really easy to get lost sometimes and start to uh, not really understand the the foundations behind you know economic theory itself and and the and and how we arrive at at what economists would call economic laws. Um, so that that's just kind of um, a, a summation. And I, I do want to add real quickly that uh, you know I do have a formal education in economics, and I must admit you know even studying it then. Uh, a lot of my classes, I did have that kind of cringy reaction to a lot of our lessons, just the way it's taught in academia. Uh, obviously, I mean, number one is from a Keynesian framework, which, um, uh, you know, have a lot of problems with. Um, and, and then just secondly, it's just, it's, it's taught so dryly. Um, it's, again, it's just, uh, there's a lot of unnecessarily uh, unnecessary statistical equations um, and and a lot of times I found myself in, in classes studying these concepts and theories and then you know reading pages and pages and pages and chapters of this and then finally understanding what they're really talking about I'm like oh yeah that that makes sense. I mean, that's a basic point that they just spent, you know, 30 pages in this chapter trying to illuminate. It could have been explained in like one paragraph because it's just really intuitive and makes sense. So, uh, and, and that's one thing that really attracts me to the Austrian School of Economics as well is that it, it takes what could be complex um, uh, uh, phenomena, complex theories, and really distills it and explains it in a much more simple fashion. Um, whereas in academia, sometimes they take what should be simple concepts to understand and make it very difficult to understand. Uh, so, so yeah, that, that's just kind of my, uh, my pitch on, uh, the Austrian school. Okay. Well, that's probably as good as could be done in the requirement I gave you. <laughs> well, <So>. thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. For the listener, I want to stipulate that during this conversation, we're going to refer to currency as money because it's just easier. It isn't money. We'll get to that in a little bit. But from a vernacular standpoint, people just know what money means. We haven't got to clarify ourselves. Your article, Direct Payments from Government is Not the Way to Stimulate the Economy, from March 18, 2020, published on the Libertarian Institute website, is about the COVID stimulus. A connection from money from the Treasury to Austrian economics may seem like a big leap, but can you explain how this loan to future taxation alters people's willingness to take on financial risk? Yeah, that, that's a um, you know a fantastic concept and, and um, something important, really important to explore. And uh, I think what I was really trying to underscore in that article is that. Um, I think it's faulty to look at those those payments that were being made as any sort of economic stimulus. Um, I mean, you could make the case that maybe it's going to provide some temporary relief, certainly to the recipients. But you have to look beyond those initial, you know, the easily seen impacts of the people receiving those funds, and you've got to dig and understand kind of the harder to, to detect uh, implications of, well, where is this money coming from? How is this going to impact the economy, you know, beyond this kind of phase one that we're looking at? And so, of course, when we, we understand um, the concept of, of opportunity costs, for example, um, you know, this money that the government is, is, is handing out and sending to folks, uh, 
that's coming from somewhere and, and we have to figure out where that somewhere is. It's, it's either being created out of thin air, you know, by the Federal Reserve or it's being taxed away or borrowed away out of the economy. So now we have to look at, OK, um, sure, these folks are receiving some checks, but then what is the impact of how that money came to be? Uh, uh, sent to them in the first place. If it's taxed away, if it's borrowed away from the economy, then that means the economy is being drained of uh, certain resources, important resources that are required to uh, grow the economy. You know, these, you know, savings is required to invest for the economy to invest in productive capacity uh, to increase uh, the, the productivity of the economy itself to create a greater abundance of goods and services available to meet the needs of society. Uh, conversely, if it's printed out of thin air uh, by the Federal Reserve, which is uh, largely what we're seeing here, uh, especially during this pandemic situation, um, that's going to create uh, an inflationary impact. Well, it is inflation, but it's going to create a, a price inflation uh, impact, uh, and that's not felt uh, evenly throughout the economy. It really can exacerbate wealth inequality uh, because it's going the new money that's being created. It's it's largely oftentimes injected at the economy into the economy at different points, uh, and it helps to inflate different kind of bubbles. Like uh, we're seeing, obviously, the stock market is in a, in a incredible bubble over the last several years. Uh, the housing market uh, back is is inflated in a bubble to a certain extent as well. And, and so that's really going to serve to enrich those asset holders who are typically largely already wealthy anyways, and at the expense of the poor because uh, uh, the poor and, and the low-skilled, low-income households, they don't have really the um, uh, the professional skills, if you will, to keep up, to, to have their wages rise and keep up with, with what's going to happen with the uh, uh, increase in prices. So they, uh, you know, the poor are impacted because they fall behind because their wages can't keep up uh, with the, the increase in the cost of living that, that will result from the increase in the money supply. Right. And I want to, we're going to come back a little bit and touch on some of these things because there's a lot of when I was learning about economics, there was just a lot of phrases that required their own attention to make sense of the phrase of the sentence. So uh, I want you to explain what is opportunity cost? What does that mean? Yeah, so opportunity cost, right? There's uh, uh, economic goods uh, are scarce. And, and uh, when economists talk about scarcity, we mean that uh, these goods have alternative uses. Uh, so when they're being used for, for one thing, they cannot simultaneously be used for another thing. Uh, say you have some lumber, uh, and you want to take some lumber and you want to build, I don't know, a picnic table with that lumber. Well, that same lumber cannot also be used, you know, to help build a house or a grand piano or something. You know, that's scarcity. Uh, um, so the opportunity cost then is uh, the next best alternative um, that is foregone um, because that scarce resource is being utilized the way it is. Uh, again, you know, so if we use some lumber to build a, uh, a picnic table, perhaps the next best alternative would have been to uh, build a, a grand piano with that, uh, with that same lumber. So that's the opportunity cost that you forego. And, and the opportunity costs are, are ranked um, according to uh, the preferences of individuals in society. So we all have kind of a ranking scale, a value scale, where we, where we rank um, uh, uh, these resources based upon um, 
the, the highest valued ends that they're going to serve for us. So, you know, we can go into the store, for example, and have $5 and we've got a lot of choices in that store. Um, but uh, so we need to rank our preferences. Well, what is the highest valued use of this $5? And say, for example, that day it's, it's to buy a gallon of milk. Um, so then your opportunity cost is, well, what else could you have gotten at that store for, for that $5? What was the second most valuable thing you, you would have wanted to spend that $5 on? That's what you had to forego because you used that $5 instead to, to purchase the milk. Uh, so, you know, it's always important to understand the, the concept of opportunity costs in a world of scarce resources, you know, um, and I think this is so important uh, when we look at government spending on projects. You know, government spends, uh, you know, $100 million to build a bridge. Well, sure, yeah, I mean, that's great, but what's the opportunity cost? What was foregone? Maybe society would have valued that $100 million more spent on something else. Uh, but because the government was building this project, they're not really um, responsive to uh, uh, society's uh, preferences, you know, they're, that's more subject to political whim. So that's always important to, um, to think about what is foregone, what, what, what was the opportunity cost when government spent money on X, Y, or Z, you know, there's always something that, that society is deprived of because those scarce resources were, were used in that project by the government. Now that was well done. I like that you started with the individual because it's important that we really get the idea to stick that Compared to, say, what everyone really knows, even if they don't know what it's called, we all are familiar with Keynesian sort of top-down econ economics. What we're, turning, what we're doing is turning this idea on its head a little bit, saying, actually, the economy starts with you, the listener. So making the decision to take whatever amount of currency you have, money, into the store to buy things, you are discriminating what you're buying that day, that week for your household. Maybe last week you bought 10 pounds of pasta. You don't need pasta this week. So the application of deciding what gets purchased and what doesn't does apply to government. Just they seem so particularly well suited to fail every time in making a good choice. They can, they can spend money brilliantly, but never seemingly in the right spot. Right. And, and that in large part, because again, you know, the government is not subject to the market test uh, and the market test is, you know, on the, in the private market, in the voluntary sector of the economy, of course, producers need to be responsive to consumer needs. Um, you know, those producers who are not uh, selling goods at a price that consumers are willing to pay, they're going to, um, you know, lose sales and eventually perhaps go out of business. Uh, but the government doesn't have that problem. They can just continue to tax and borrow in order to spend to finance their projects. So without the market test, there's really uh, very little way to, to, to gauge if uh, government expenditures are going towards the most high, high, uh, highly valued uses for society. Well, yes. And it just occurred to me, there's, I think, another thing. I don't know how you do this. But one of the things missing, I think, in the government equation is preferences. Now, we have a finite amount of money to spend at the store in any given week. We have a budget. Even if it changes, we have a budget. The government doesn't have the budget. Their preferences almost seem not to exist other than how can we blow through all this money. And I, I know of state agencies over the course of my lifetime who've been given 
you know, and people who work for the state will shake their head and say, yeah, this is right. They get X amount of dollars allocated for office furniture. If you don't spend all the money you're given on office furniture, next year's budget is that much less in office furniture. So you have to keep spending all the money they tell you to spend without regard to accountability because you want more of it next year. So anyway, that's, that's, that is a complete other episode. So, but I think at least the, the understanding of how preferences and accountability works. Um, so one of the things I wanted to see if we can get to is, um, the financial risk. Now, from a personal level, that's a different thing than it is from a business level. So investors or business owners are going to borrow money uh, to build or expand their business. When the interest rate is altered by the Fed, now, altered by the Fed is a podcast by itself. But what that basically means is the Jerome Powells of the world are artificially creating an interest rate as opposed to just letting the course of action run and interest be what the normal market price would be. I know that sounds insane and we're not going to bother with that right now. But when the Fed gets in the way of that, when it interferes with the normal flow of how things would work, now we have interest rate of zero or low. Borrowing seems like a good idea. But one of the challenges that comes is borrowing in uncertainty and I think everyone would agree that right now banking is uncertain. That's called malinvestment. That's one of those other words that you're going to hear. That overlooks a lot of details, and I know that. But can you keep us in the Austrian sphere a little bit, explain just a little bit how borrowing when the interest rate isn't reflective of what's correct, like zero, is causing some of the problems we've been seeing? Yeah, I mean, and, and the interest rate, uh, you know, a lot of people can say that is the price of borrowing. And a lot of folks would argue that that's perhaps the most important price there is in the economy, you know. And, and so when it's not being determined by the market, it's not being determined by the preferences and values uh, that we, you know, that we've been discussing of consumers in the marketplace. Um, instead, if it's being set and manipulated by uh, uh, the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell, uh, then that can uh, convey false information. Um, you know, that price is not reflecting reality. You know, that price meaning the interest rate is not reflecting reality. So just to uh, kind of as a basic, like uh, in, in the uh, loan market, for example, if consumers uh, are, are not looking to spend a lot of money right now, uh, instead they're saving a lot of money. And so what that would normally do in the market to the interest rate is that would push interest rates down because there's not a lot of demand for, for, for people to borrow. Uh, and there's a, a ample supply of the savings. So you have a high supply, low demand that drives down the price. So we're going to have low interest rates. Um, so then what low interest rates then do is incentivize producers to invest uh, typically in more durable kind of equipment. Um, you know, the more interest rate sensitive uh, industries are going to be stimulated because it's very cheap to borrow. Uh, but what that does then is so 
that coordinates the preferences of consumers and the actions of producers. So if we have consumers that are saving now and and preferring to defer consumption to the future, that lowers the interest rates. The interest rates then incentivize the producers uh, to borrow now to to invest in their production or the uh, productive capacity so that they can increase output in the future, right? So then consumers are deferring uh, consumption now and wanting to save to so they can consume more in the future. Producers are investing now so they can create greater output in the future. So, so you see how that that those preferences are are come into um, come into concert uh, with each other uh, when the market allows the interest rates to adjust. But when there's a faulty a false low interest rate that's caused not by actual savings by the preferences of consumers. Instead, it's caused by, you know, printing this fiat currency out of thin air. Um, producers still look at that signal, that low interest rate as a signal to invest in productive capacity, in their productive capacity to create greater output in the future. But when the, when that output in the future comes online and, the, and, and they're churning it out and looking to sell it to consumers, well, guess what? Consumers had not been saving uh, for future consumption, uh, so there's just there's not there's going to be insufficient demand for those products in the future. That it, it completely takes um, takes it out of sync the preferences of consumers and producers because that false signal of that low artificially lowered interest rate. Right. So to to the new to economic thinking listener that may sound like i don't really know what you're talking about so i think we can put this into a context that's okay it takes some i've done a lot of reading to get this far and i'm not very far at all um there, there's a way to sort of make this make sense and uh, a fellow named mark thornton has written a book called the skyscraper curse which illustrates that that phenomenon in in massive effect where the the people who are the construction people are borrowing a lot of money at next to no rate building these skyscrapers then something happens and generally the something happens is the interest rate goes up now they can't afford to pay back the money they borrowed there's nobody who wants so several things happen well you know what you explain what you explain the skyscrapers how so so when they see these empty skyscrapers they're saying what's going on here I, th I think that's a visual example of of the radical implications of what zero finance lending does. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, these interest rate sensitive uh, industries, especially in uh, building, you know, commercial real estate and and housing, um, you, you know, again, these low interest rates are going to st stimulate demand in these industries. Uh, so. Uh, so now we have builders are they're going to start producing a lot of skyscrapers. They're going to start building new more and more housing uh, subdivisions and everything. But eventually, at some point, um, if the economy starts to heat up, prices start to rise, the Federal Reserve um, reverses their low interest rate policy and start to raise interest rates. Now, all of a sudden, you have all these companies that have committed to these uh, uh, projects that rely on cheap. Uh, borrowing now, all of a sudden, these projects that used to look like they were uh, potentially profitable because they could borrow so cheaply, um, now all of a sudden, with the higher interest rates, uh, these investments 
don't appear or, or no longer are profitable. Uh, so now you have this, uh, uh, you know, all these skyscrapers that are built, all these, you know, McMansions that have been built and everything. And as uh, interest rates have are now higher then people and, and businesses can't afford, you know, the, to, um, you know, to buy these houses. So again, it's just kind of a, uh, the origin is uh, the false signal sent by these these artificially low interest rates, and it, it sort of creates a situation where it's actually cheaper to walk away from it than continue it. Right, right, yeah. Oftentimes that that's the case, uh, or you know, de- declare bankruptcy and and have to try to liquidate your assets. And I want to move to a quote from you about stimulus money. But before we do, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Do you want to be the king of the tailgate this football season? You can be with Maine Lobster from Lobster Anywhere. When you order live Maine Lobsters from Lobster Anywhere, you get quality you can trust. Lobster Anywhere does, in fact, ship to just about anywhere in the U.S. If it is urgent, you may be able to get overnight delivery. Sorry, overseas orders cannot be fulfilled. Lobster Anywhere features fresh, live Maine lobsters, as well as frozen lobster tails, sea scallops, soups, and more. Lobster Anywhere is your trusted, sustainable source for the best hard-shell Maine lobster delivery to your front door, overnight, guaranteed. Available year-round from a sustainable fishery and caught locally around Massachusetts by independent lobstermen, Lobster Anywhere specializes in wild-caught, live Maine lobster and frozen lobster tail delivery. In addition to live Maine lobster, Lobster Anywhere also sells frozen lobster tails in the shell and shelled lobster meat, lobster roll sandwiches, chowder and bisque, and surf and turf dinners. For this football season, celebrate with grilled lobster from Lobster Anywhere. Brush the meat with some roasted garlic butter for an extra special treat. The fresh Maine lobsters have over 300 five-star reviews. Lobster Anywhere lobsters are packed to guarantee you get live Maine lobsters and with lobster, fresh is best. The Lobster Anywhere website also has cooking tips and recipes and videos on their Lobster University tab. Learn everything you need to know about how to cook and enjoy your lobster. And when you order from Lobster Anywhere, you earn sand dollar points, which you can redeem at checkout for a discount on your purchase price. Click the banner on the show notes page or type culinarylibertarian.com slash Maine Lobster into your browser to start shopping for the best hard-shell Maine Lobsters on the internet. Be the host with the most this tailgate season with live Mains from Lobster Anywhere. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash Maine Lobster to order today. Now let's get back into the show. I want to move to a quote from your paper about stimulus money. It reads... Quote, for starters, the shock to the economic system is coming from the supply side. Putting government checks into the hands of consumers will do nothing to address the significant hit to, to production caused by closing factories and companies suffering from high worker absences due to workers staying home. End quote. 
So I have a point I want to make, but first, can you briefly explain the terms supply side and production side for the listeners who don't really understand the economic terms? Yeah, so I, I was writing that uh, obviously within the context of the uh, shutdowns, you know, taking place across America and, and well, a lot of countries across the world, really, um, uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, and so what that was doing is that was really uh, putting uh, a negative pressure on the supply side of the economy, meaning those businesses that are producing and creating the supply of goods and services for consumers to purchase. Um, and so obviously, when you have businesses that are shutting down, uh, workers are being sent home uh, out of fears of the pandemic, the supply, the output that's being created of these goods and services obviously is, is going to be restricted and, and going to see a decline. Um, and, and so I was just kind of pointing that out and then saying that, you know, sending checks to consumers to try to spend more, you know, that's not going to increase any of this, you know, that's not going to get the, the supply problem back on track at all because people are still being forced to stay home. Their businesses are being forcibly closed by, by uh, government. Um, so all you're going to do is you're going to put more money in the hands of consumers and encourage them to go out to spend. Meanwhile, on the supply side, you know, producers are producing fewer goods and services than they were before because of the shutdowns. So now you've got a situation where there's more consumer dollars chasing fewer uh, goods and services that are available for purchase. That's just that's what that's going to do is going to end up driving prices up, and and it's not going to get the economy back on track uh, because you know businesses are shut down. I mean, the only the only uh, antidote to that is reopening the economy, not just you know funneling money into the hands of consumers and telling them here go out and spend money on uh, on this uh, dwindling supply of goods and services. Right, and so there's. It's interesting that the people who are doing this, the government's doing this, there is there is a pretty broad misconception that consumption, going and buying stuff, is the driving force of the economy. So let's go to our local shoelace store or grocery store, and, and don't, I don't mean to be cartoonish, but you know, you go to the grocery store, you buy the store out of everything they have, including toilet paper. And if nobody is down the chain of things to make more of it, well, then it doesn't just appear. So these are, and, and this is where I think the big difference between the Austrian thinking and the Keynesian thinking is, is that there's, you, you can't just go buy stuff and, and have it reappear. It requires people at a job that has, you know, so we talk about, one of the economic terms is capital goods. That's not your shirt. That's the machine that made the shirt. Uh, and further down the line, that's the machine that made the machine that made the shirt. And the trucks that take all of the things to the machine-making machine, or the shirt-making machine. Anyway, I'm getting myself tongue-tied. But consumption isn't the thing that drives the economy. Production is the thing that drives the economy. Giving people more money to spend on things that don't exist doesn't do anything. It just well, it causes problems that we're seeing. And I think we're going to talk about Jerome Powell in just a second um, and his speech as of this recording it was last week. So Fed Chief Jerome Powell did give a speech last Thursday about the future. But let's talk a bit about the Fed 
money currency out of thin air and why the dollar loses its value as it travels through the market. Now, this is a whole podcast episode and has a lot to ask. I, I think really particularly, um, as I'm going to mention a link in a minute. I'm going to show for the people who want to see more about this because Mike Mahoney does a really good job and I'll talk about him in a minute. You mentioned earlier that when the Fed is producing currency, money, and the, the people who get it first are getting more of the value from that $1 than the people at the end of it. Now, that's a really mind-blowing idea. Can you explain how that's the case? And then it sort of explains the rest of the, of the questions. Right. Yeah. So when when uh, uh, the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air, as, you, as we would say, you know, fiat currency, um, it, it's not uh, it, it's not like, um, you know, Milton Friedman used to kind of talk about the helicopter money. It's not like a helicopter flies over the country and just dro drops the money evenly across to everybody and everybody receives the same amount of money at the same time. That's not how it works. Uh, the money, newly created money, is injected into the economy at very specific points. Uh, typically, a, a lot of it is injected into the economy via uh, credit, um, you know, to to businesses, you know, to these that we were talking about earlier, um, the businesses that are uh, enticed by the low interest rates. They're they're um, uh, borrowing this money and then spending this money to try to purchase typically to, to, to uh, undurable capital goods and things of that nature. So, so then it's it, those folks then um, that are creating the durable capital goods, um, they're getting their hands on that money first. And so their wages start to go up. Um, but, but this money hasn't yet uh, filtered throughout the entire economy. So it's these early receivers of this money. Now they have more money, they have some higher wages, uh, but, but prices really have across the board really haven't started to, to take hold uh, or increase, I should say. Uh, so those early receivers of the money, now they can take their higher wages, they can go out and spend their money at the store and so forth. And, and prices have not yet gone up. Uh, eventually that money starts to circulate and spread throughout the economy and starts to uh, increase prices, um, you know, on, on these commonly uh, demanded goods. Um, so meanwhile, the folks furthest away from the money, uh, that new money injections, uh, you know, their wages are still stagnant. They haven't benefited from it yet. Um, but nevertheless, now they're having, they're seeing the prices at the store rise uh, because of the inflation. So they're, those are the ones who are really hurt. Those who, who, are, who are most uh, you know, furthest away from the injections of those new money, they don't get, don't really get to the benefit of it, but then they are stuck paying higher prices because of the effect of that new money starting to circulate through the economy. Right. Um, so what Powell said, if I understand him correctly, and feel free to tell me that I don't, he wants to keep the inflation at 2%, but average it. At two percent, which means that it could be three or three and a half percent, or one or half percent. Does that pretty much sound like what he said? Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, Powell's comments did signify a bit of a change uh, to this kind of quote average inflation targeting um, of two percent. You know, for for the for the long time, it would just be a strict target. We're trying to target 2% inflation, and that's what we're shooting for. Now they're saying, well, since inflation 
according to their measures, and that's that could be another discussion, but according to their measures, inflation is still very low. You know, for example, it's been only 1% for for X number of years. So we're just going to kind of say our goal now is a 2% average inflation. So that means um, to, 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 to lift that average inflation rate up from the 1%, that it's been for for a long time, you know, they could run inflation a little bit hotter than that 3% or even 4%, you know, in the near term, uh, or in the short term to try to bring that average up, which is uh, definitely concerning, in my opinion, (laughs) especially when you look at uh, the the unbelievable amounts of money printing that's been taking place um, these last uh, several years, that the Fed is indicating that, that they may even continue to be more aggressive in money printing. I mean, um, you know, we, we, we can talk about the flaws in their inflation <laughs> measures if, if you want to, but, you know, I'll just kind of leave it at that. So, yeah, definitely kind of a change of course, which to me signifies that, that the Fed has an appetite for even more money printing uh, in the near term. If this were a music show, we'd say that's an appetite for destruction. <laughs> so the big question is, and, and yeah, I don't really, I don't think this is the show, and I'm not even sure I'm qualified to ask even a cogent question about the Fed and what they are or are not thinking, even if they are thinking. Uh, but to me, the big question is, how explain how inflation is basically robbing two people of 2% of their money. Yeah, so so inflation is just um uh you know the the I guess the classic definition of inflation is just inflating the money supply. Um you know that's that's been the tra- the traditional definition of inflation is just you're inflating the money supply. You're just creating more dollars. You know in the old days it used to be via the printing press. Uh now it's just all done digitally. It's just money is created from from nothing basically. Um, you know, now inflation is typically more talked about um, as being an increase in prices of, uh, you know, consumer goods and services kind of across the board. Um, so so what happens is when inflation hits, uh, price inflation specifically what we're talking about is uh, obviously prices of the goods and services that people, you know, that households buy on a regular basis uh, are becoming more expensive. So the dollars that you have in your pocket now, when you take them to the store, they don't buy as much where, you know, before, if you had a hundred dollar, uh, say you had a hundred dollar weekly grocery budget, you know, that could fill up the, that could fill up the basket. Now, all of a sudden when inflation hits and, and, um, uh, uh, the prices at the grocery store are higher, you still, but you still only have, can afford a hundred dollar weekly grocery budget. Now you, you know, that $100 doesn't go as far. You're not able to fill up that shopping cart anymore with groceries because uh, everything you're putting in that cart has become more expensive. So, you know, inflation, again, that that's how it's robbing you of the purchasing power of the money that you have. Uh, and of course, it's those people that are hurt the most by inflation are those who, again, are, are typically lower skilled or they're on a fixed income. So their wages uh, don't rise along with the increase in the cost of living through the increased prices. So, uh, and it, it's especially harmful to savers too. I mean, if you're saving, if you've been saving for years and years, maybe for retirement or something, um, and, and now you want to go spend those dollars that you've saved all the time, well, those dollars aren't going to go very, they're not going to go as far as they would have without the inflation. 
Um, and, and that's very, that's, that's devastating to a lot of folks that they see the value of their savings that they've been, you know, maybe a nest egg they've been putting aside for decades. Uh, the, the purchasing power of that nest egg just continues to get weaker and weaker uh, the, the higher inflation runs. Yeah, that's the part that's just really, it's, it's on the, in the academic aggregate, it's very upsetting because you can, you think about maybe it's your grandparents, maybe it's your, maybe it's your parents who <laughs> saving and now it's, it's worthless or nearly worthless. And uh, there was, I don't know where it is. If I can find it, I'll put a link on the show notes page, uh, which by the way, will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 103. Uh, the the dollar over the course of time since I think 1913 has lost well over 90 percent of its value, which is pretty staggering when you think about it, and it's probably best not to think about it actually. All right, I want to do a little bit of review to solidify the ideas, but before we do that, here's Jake to mention his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right, let's see if we can cover some of the broad points. Uh, we have... We have our man, and he's got his wage, and he's going to go to the store, and his economy starts by what he can choose to purchase or to not purchase. So he can, you know, he can borrow money from the bank to add on to or buy his home, but now there's some challenges. So can we cover the basics of people engaging in sort of their own personal economy without getting too nerdy or too jargony. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, this, this gets back to, um, you know, individual preferences that we were talking about earlier. You know, each, each individual is going to value things differently. Um, they're going to have different priorities. Uh, and even, the, you know, the same person, their values are going to change uh, even from one day to the next. Um, so what we have is, yeah, I mean, individuals are, they, they have uh, a set amount of resources they can use, um, you know, specifically in this case, I guess, dollars, uh, you know, a set amount of, of dollars they can use to satisfy their, their needs and their wants. Uh, and so they need to make decisions about how they're going to spend that money, about how they're going to spend those resources. And, and in so choosing, you know, they're choosing what they are going to use that money on. Uh, in so doing, they're choosing what they must forego, what they're not going to use that money for. So they're making these decisions. Um, and, and that's really what drives, uh, you know, Austrian economic analysis is, is using that as the starting point. Uh, and from there, of course, uh, it's up to producers and sellers and businesses to then respond to the preferences of consumers. You know, how consumers are choosing to spend their dollars, um, that sends signals to the sellers, to the stores, to the businesses of, of what consumers value the most highly. So more resources then on the production side are going to go into 
um, those lines of production that are creating the goods and services that are most highly valued by consumers, you know, as, as consumers express their express their preferences through their buying patterns. Uh, so that's really how you start to, uh, you know, a great starting point of really constructing a vision and, and an idea of how the economy works. Well, that's good. I've, and, and I think that that's a satisfactory beginning for people who at least want to start getting a handle on an economics from an Austrian perspective. And when I started thinking economically, uh, it actually, you mentioned Milton Friedman, and I don't remember how I sort of stumbled onto him on YouTube talking to Phil Donahue about greed which is probably one of the most popular four-minute clips uh, of Milton on economics. And I thought, wow, this is one, you know, there, there are there's, there's few academic reasons to sort of not care for Milton Friedman, and I don't care too much about those. He has a, a, a way of presenting information that you just want to keep listening because he's got such a good good presentations like wow <laughs> that's what got me in that's there was milton friedman and phil donahue yeah that that's a fantastic clip definitely i mean Fre friedman is he doesn't fall in the austrian economics uh camp you know technically but uh uh that's a <laughs> that is a great clip uh on donahue talking about the whole notion of greed and and he uh challenges phil donahue um you know, with the question, well, what society, you know, what institutions are not run by greed? Um, you know, look at the uh, the Russian czar, you know, you don't think he's not motivated by greed and, and trying to empower his buddies and, and things like that. Sure. And, and um, <laughs> uh, it's one of the few times I think Donnie, who's been rendered somewhat speechless. Yeah, I think, and I think Milton actually made Phil speechless a couple of times, but you know, such as the, and yeah, I, I think he isn't full on Austrian, but he, what his contribution was to getting normal people, as opposed to academics, involved in thinking about things, I think it's, it's immeasurable. I think it's, it's very, very valuable. Uh, we avoided getting into the weeds about currency printing. We've mentioned it that, you know, it's printing out of thin air. It's just another kettle of fish, so to speak. I am going to put a link, and I mentioned it to a. It's about half an hour long video about money. Uh, it's actually a whole series. Uh, I believe it's Mike Maloney. Uh, it's the Hidden Secrets of Money series. Uh, it's fantastic. Once you get on one, you get in all of them. Really does a good job of explaining where how currency is printed and what it means to say coming out of thin air. Let's move into a different part of the show. It's a little short answer questions. Uh, you can elaborate if you wish, but that's just, you know, just a couple of fun things to talk about. Of the five flavors, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, or umami, which one do you prefer the most? Oh, uh, yeah, I've definitely got a sweet tooth. That's <laughs> running my family for, for a few generations. What's your favorite food? Ooh, um, well, sweet tooth, so I, I would say ice cream. What's your least favorite food? Oh, broccoli. <laughs> what sound do you love? Uh, the sound that I love would be the uh, sound of my children laughing. What sound do you hate? Ooh, um, I still remember that old 
uh, uh, noise uh, that would fax machines used to make. <laughs> that was very oh, crin- cringeworthy. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I agree. And what is your favorite food indulgence? Indulgence? Uh, well, every now and then I'd, I'd love throwing a, a nice juicy steak on the grill. Hmm, that sounds fabulous. For people who are interested in learning more about East about Austrian economics or money and currency and are prepared to follow a whole bunch of rabbit holes, are there some books you recommend? Now, the hard part of that question is not more than three titles. Oh, uh, a title on Austrian economics. Um, boy. Uh, or I, money or currency. Yeah, yeah. I think a good starting point is uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Um, that's, that's a good entree. Um, and then of course, uh, Murray Rothbard's book, uh, man, economy and state is, um, that's, that's a massive book. So you need to definitely be really dedicated and pumped up about learning about it. But that, that's, I mean, that'll really give you kind of A to Z, a great understanding of, of economics and, and economic theory from the Austrian perspective. Okay. And you have a third, do you want to use it? Oh, um, well, uh, I, I would definitely say Human Action by Mises. Uh, it's wow. another great one. Uh, another uh, very thick <laughs> book. So yeah. <laughs> set aside plenty of time. Uh, but the, the, yeah, I mean, those are the kind of books that I, I like sitting down with and, and just kind of nerding out with. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually rereading Human Action right now. And, and uh, there's always just something new you can take from it. Yeah, well... He, yeah, human action, it's, it's worth getting. You might want to start with something else by Mises first just to just to get in. This is right. deep end of the pool stuff, but definitely worth getting into. Very good. Well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it, Riley. It's, uh, it's a meaty episode, but there's a lot of good, good information here as a primer for people interested in understanding what's going on. I think it's important, not just because it's an election year, but it's important to understand what's happening now this is maybe outside of your field of expertise but what can people do to at least shore up what their investments are maybe they don't have a lot but instead of watching it just dwindle to zero in an ira just as a personal suggestion i'm not not asking you as a financial advisor what should they do What, what ideas do you have yeah, well, I think just an important thing is to uh, learn a bit more just about the money supply because um, it has such a, a major impact on uh, your investment, especially if you're in the stock market, um, even bond returns. Uh, that has such a major impact um, is what the Fed is doing. I mean, we're looking at a, a, an incredible stock market bubble that just continues to be inflated by Federal Reserve money printing. Um uh, now, granted, uh, when when there are changes in the money supply, uh, it, it's going to be very difficult to get the timing just right. Uh, but just kind of as some general guidelines, I think you know watching the money supply, what the Federal Reserve doing is doing, uh, is super important uh, when you're considering what you know where you want to put your investments. Well, I think that that's absolutely spot on. Very good. Well, thank you again for your time this afternoon. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. 
I'll link to the article I mentioned on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 103, as well as the three books Bradley mentioned and his website, erasethestate.com. I'm going to add two more links. One will be to a book by Bob Murphy, who is an Austrian economist, called Lessons for a Young Economist. The young economist here may be young in years, but not necessarily. It applies also to young in economic knowledge. The chapter breakdown follows the main topics Bradley brought up, and Bob has an ability to make the complex easy to understand. The other book is the Mark Thornton book I mentioned, The Skyscraper Curse. Both will be linked to Mises.org, as well as Man, Economy, Estate, and Human Action. They are free to download in various digital formats or to purchase as physical copies. Share this episode to your friends on social media and on your favorite podcatcher, leave a rating and a review. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.